0: everyone welcome back I'm Dr. Shiloh here with Dr. Scott hey folks oh my gosh it's June and and I'm and in the air me... right now <laughs> no you're in the air <laughs> I am in the Cotswolds yes so gosh. CrimeCon UK is here already. We've been I anticipating have, it so long.
1: I have to say your little attempt there at a Cotswolds accent is pretty impressive. That oh. was that it's a very specific UK accent. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. Oh, at I least mean,
1: for my ear. I mean, who am I? Yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a redneck from the South. So who
0: knows? <laughs> when I get a review from you on an accent, I am <laughs> taking it. Yes. Can't wait to see you guys and I do know. all the things this weekend. We are ready and gosh, we're just excited to hit that stage. I no, we
1: have such a challenge in front of us because we're taking yeah. all of this information that we have that can, that has been in the past for you and me has been a three hour presentation mm-hmm. and we are distilling it down to be able to present it in 45 minutes and leave right. some time for interaction. I mean, it's, it's a big deal for yes. us, big challenge, but we're up to it.
0: Yeah. So we're going to attempt on stage to talk as fast as you hear us talk when you put us at 1.75 speed. On
1: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: No, no, no. It will be digestible. It'll be great. But yeah, before we jump in today, let's go to our recap.
1: Yeah, we'll be on double frappuccino speed for you folks. (laughs) This is Andrew from the Scary Mysteries podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and creepy true crime compilations on Mondays. And on Wednesdays, we have our twisted news episodes, where we get you up to speed on the most terrifying and strange news stories currently happening all around the world. We're covering the topics you want to hear about, missing persons, killers, UFOs, and more. Best of all, we don't waste your time with any fluff or fillers, just straight to the true crime details. So go check out the Scary Mysteries podcast, and I'll see you there. So last week, we did our doc review on Alabama Snake. Who knew? That we would get as much reaction we had on the discussion boards. I I was not expecting that at all. People sharing some very interesting reactions Mm -hmm. that were very personal. And I really appreciated that. And especially a Shay. Shay always blows us away with their insights. And this one was... particularly enlightening one for me that actually reminded me of what I had forgotten about sort of the opioid epidemic in the South, oh, or how it got yes. started. So thank you so much, Shay. But not, not to bury the lead, the HBO Max documentary, Alabama Snake, although it's not HBO Max anymore. It's just HBO. Oh, it's just, no, it's just Max. Oh, it's just Max. Oh, God. Yes. I can't even keep up. Get
0: it right. I can't keep
1: it up. <laughs> Alabama Snake is the story of a Pentecostal preacher named Glenn Summerford. And on a night in 1991, he either did or maybe did not attempt to murder his wife through the act of forcing her at gunpoint to put her hand in a box that contained venomous snakes. This doc covers storytelling, the people involved in the crime case, and the cultural and religious folklore phenomenon at the center of the story. Highly recommend our episode. I think I can recommend our episode. Yeah, definitely. Probably higher than the the documentary itself, <laughs> but that's just me.
0: Yeah, it, it's one of those that people are like, what the hell? Never heard of this? As- right. We had not either, but it at least it wasn't a total dud. Like you said, it just generated a lot of interest and brought up some stuff for folks. So please check it out. I also want to note before we get to our episode today that after our incel episodes came out, we received some really great information from our Canadian listeners. In part two of that series, we discussed the case of a perpetrator in the late 80s who had shot and killed women at a Canadian college. And some had opined, which we talked about in the episode, that this was like the first ever incel mass attack. Well, I think
1: Possibly, right.
0: Well, right. Like, yeah, historically kind of looking at it, but I think it's really interesting how narratives evolve because in the resources that you and I looked into, there was no mention that the attack had come just months after the Canadian Supreme Court made the decision that women had the right to abort a pregnancy. So our listeners clued us into the fact that this really followed a major event in their country and was probably a result of that, especially with some of the language the perpetrator used when he was there, but it just brought so much context to them. They were like, I don't know if you know this, but you know, this is probably more of the trigger for the person.
1: Absolutely. And it was not in the research that we looked at So I want to now like, and thank you for, you know, setting us right on this, because now we can add it to our presentation that continues to evolve and grow over the years. So thank you very, very much for that information.
0: Yes, always listeners always coming through with the receipts for sure. Okay. So today we're talking about true crime in general. At first I was thinking true crime fans, but as you guys will learn that specific research is yet to come out and we have some. Um, we're gonna give you a little taste of that that's out there. But yeah, we're gonna get super meta today because we're talking about the research that is out there when we talk about true crime. And Scott and I have been really interested in the true crime community. One is like far back the six years is becoming part of it, but looking at this community and the consumers of this genre as one that purposefully exposes themselves to traumatic stories over and over again. And by essentially reading about, listening to, or watching these accounts, then making ourselves susceptible to vicarious trauma. So it was something very obvious, I think, to you and I, as people who have worked in careers where we have to be really mindful of vicarious trauma, that this was something that was a similar parallel, but in this entertainment Form. Kind of weird, but also I think obvious to you and I. So, since starting this podcast, you and I have always dreamed about being able to do a research study, basically a survey, self report type study looking at the impacts of true crime on the consumer. And although I regret that we're not revealing any original research here today, (laughs) who has time for that? Right. Right. We thought we'd look at what exists out there currently in terms of the true crime genre, fans, and the impacts from the industry from a more academic point of view. However, there is very little. So we're going to shape this out the best way that we thought with the information that we gathered.
1: So let's start with vicarious trauma. And that's been defined as the emotional residue of exposure to traumatic stories and experiences of others through work. This can also include witnessing fear, pain and terror that others have experienced. So vicarious trauma was first identified in the 1980s and was simply referred to as what we called the cost of caring because it identified in professionals working alongside victims in various capacities like nurses, first responders, mental health professionals, victim advocates, symptoms can parallel those of PTSD, re experiencing the event avoidance of the stimuli or triggers or remembrances, persistent arousal and changes in how they see the world. For example, that the world is just not safe or it's not just and it's not fair.
0: Right, right. So interestingly, we also know from the research that professionals with previous trauma histories show significantly higher secondary trauma symptoms than those that had no trauma history. So I think this was something that you and I were interested in. If we had ever gotten the chance to conduct some research in this area, a couple of hypotheses that we had talked about right. were basically number one, are true crime consumers experiencing vicarious trauma symptoms as a result of the content? You know, are we sort of putting ourselves in a worse state, if you will? And then two, are true crime consumers with trauma histories? being drawn to true crime content and therefore perhaps are suffering more with vicarious trauma like we see in the professional world when you have that exposure due to your job. So, I mean, what do you think, Scott? I mean, it's been a while since we've talked about this, but do you think this still is our good questions to ask ourselves either just as consumers? Because I think it lends to how we take care of ourselves if we're going to digest all this too.
1: I, I think it is. I think that we do have to continue to ask these questions. I think that we also, as we ask research. Researchers, like professional researchers and statisticians mm-hmm. to look at this information. I think that they need to broaden their scope. And what's come up for me lately is the idea that we really should looking at control groups of people who absolutely do not like this type of material. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we also need to look at a control group that enjoys watching horror, you know, because horror be watchers and myself included, we enjoy getting stimulated mm-hmm. in that way. It's a, yes. like a it's a it's like going over a roller coaster, you know. So where's exactly. the Venn diagram and the overlap between these communities and these experiences?
0: Yeah, because there's some things to sort of sort out there in terms of like, well, true crime is true. So there's that extra scary element in horror. Do we put that in kind of this compartment of fantasy? That would be great. What a well-rounded study to look at those different yeah, I would love that. groups.
1: Sure. And it looks like my upstairs neighbors are doing their clogging lessons again. So sorry, oh. folks, if you're hearing anything, but they're really good cloggers. So I'm not going to complain about it.
0: <laughs> Your new neighbors are cloggers.
1: I know, but they're wonderful. You know what? They can clog all they want. They're so great. Awesome. Okay. So now that we've laid out the foundation, let's get into what is out there and then what the future research is happening, going on, being conducted as we speak, as well as what we, you know, we just shared with our audience that we would like to see happen. So there is a researcher out there who made an entire theory of true crime from which you can rate contenders. Ian Case published a book in 2018, and he offered eight categories to determine if something is quote unquote, true crime. And if so, what its purpose is. Already love the way he's parsing this down. Very, very smart. The first and foremost important code is the teleology, the TEL code, which states that any true crime artifact must strive to be as accurate as possible. If an artifact does not meet this code, it can never be considered true crime. Love it even more. Yeah. If it does meet this first criteria, then you can determine the following subcategory. So here are the subcategories. We have JUST, which is the Justice Code, and it states that true crime artifacts must seek justice for the victim or victims as its primary objective. So the subcode or SUB, which means subversive, states that the creator of the artifact will urge the reader, the viewer, the listener to reconsider already existing testimonies, evidence, or to expose injustice or judicial malfeasance. Another one called the Crusader or CRUS, C-R-U-S code, does not seek to overturn a specific wrong, but instead calls for new awareness or social change in general.
0: So far with these, I can already picture like each podcast that is one of these subcategories.
1: Absolutely. Isn't that cool? I love it. Yeah. I just love
0: it. And what's coming to the forefront of my head are the ones that feel a little bit more ethical, right? right? Like We talk about ethical true crime a lot now.
1: The ETH code. Yeah.
0: The ETH. Ooh, we're just making our own codes. So the codes go on. There's a few more. There's the geographic code, which is geo. It's the location. It, well, it focuses on the location or the setting of the crime that frames the story. Similar in the way that Truman Capote described the crime scene, you know, this isolated Kansas farmhouse in great detail in in Cold Blood. So really kind of, I feel like with this one, he's he's accepting that there is some artistic narrative, I guess, right. with these stories. And then there's also the Forensic Code, F-O-R, which entails vivid descriptions of crime scenes, evidence, autopsies, investigations, and any... Other technical elements that come along with investigating mostly murder. So then the vocative code, VOC, is what sets true crime apart from traditional crime reporting, where the position of the journalist changes from an objective to an advocacy position. And they're saying that if true crime is sticking to that, that maybe there is not advocacy involved in certain types. And then the last code is the folkloric code, Folk, which emphasizes how true crime narratives sometimes instruct without teaching, meaning that they're based in a real story, but attempt to use that story to give a lesson back to the audience. So again, I think true crime podcasting, which isn't the only type of true crime, obviously, but we're, like we said earlier, we're kind of thinking of different shows that take these different routes. I don't know where you and I fall in there, but maybe we're not real true crime, but no, I think, you know, obviously this is one person that tried to sort of de- define what the heck true crime even is, Yeah, which we're going to talk about that a little bit more with our next researcher, but it'd be interesting just with how it's evolved to see, you know, maybe there's an educational code that falls under there now that you and I probably fit a little bit more into.
1: Well, I mean, almost it's interesting. I think that there's gonna be a lot of overlap in these codes, which is Mm -hmm. gonna be really challenging and fascinating. And Folk almost seems like instruct without teaching. Yeah. I guess I want to drill down more into what he means by that. I mean, I kind of get it, but I don't want to make an assumption. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure where we would fall, but it, it's certainly maybe we're too close to our own. But like looking at some others of our colleagues, I go, oh, I can see where this sure. would fall here and that would fall there. But I love that they're starting off because you, you have to start off somewhere. And right. he's thinking big, which is very, very ambitious. And I respect it a lot. But you were talking about our next year. A researcher, Dr. Jean Murley, is an associate professor at CUNY Queensboro, and wrote a book called The Rise of True Crime, 20th Century Murder and American Popular Culture. It's back in 2008. She explored why these stories are so popular and why they're so fascinating to us. And we've referred to her and her type of research in our past episodes and discussions that we've had at conferences. I know she's mm-hmm. been referenced before. By and large, she found that the content is most often a murder narrative in true crime. And it's often seen as a pulp genre that's viewed as something weird to be. Into And therefore, sometimes not taken seriously in the whole scheme of content genres. She goes on to describe true crime as, and this is a quote, a way of making sense of the senseless and has become a worldview on contemporary American life, one that is suspicious and cynical, one that is narrowly focused on crime that is preoccupied with safety, order, justice. I mean, I love that because it dovetails with our most recent live stream as well. Yeah. I mean, you and I are in the thick of it. We're in the mix. We're experiencing all this. We have on our algorithms, our feeds, we see the worst of the worst, but the stats don't really bear that out that that's the way the world is. Right. So
0: yeah, yet we're emotionally tied to it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And that's what I
1: would love people to come away with, not to, to, to shout down our genre at all, because I think it's important stuff that that a lot of us as content creators are doing. But, you know, be careful. Yep. So she's also very interested in looking at the context of the murder narratives and how society media and consumers perspectives change the narrative and the stories as time goes on. You and I talk about yep. this all <laughs> of the time. She gave the example of Lizzie Borden and how during that time, society could not comprehend that a woman of her status from a good family could do any sort of such thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas today, she would most certainly be treated differently and likely be convicted rather than acquitted. Absolutely agree with that.
0: Yeah, definitely. And Again, you know, her book was in two thousand eight, so really, it only goes so far. I mean, you and I were in internship then; no. it was a long time ago now. But I, I wanted to use her because she really, in presentations and in her book, breaks down the historical timeline, which I thought we could go over very briefly. Just looking at true crime, I mean, you can go as far back as you know, an initial writing of Edgar Allan Poe's. You can go back to it, basically selling tickets to attend public executions, but. In terms of like the modern era of true crime really she starts that timeline with the true detective magazines right. and you know how they evolved and went from sort of these mundane crime stories that people were interested in to some extent but then it turns into really utilizing sex and the femme fatales and some you know SM light on the covers oh yeah to increase these sales and
1: very lurid covers and artwork oh, which yeah. make great posters today there's like you can get, yes. get them on like poster.com. They're wonderful.
0: Yes, yes. But really what is, she kind of puts a pin in the fact that that's a very specific time where we start to see this coupling of sex and violence and the interest of that happening. And then she sort of jumps into the books, you know, the true crime books, really the, the pillars like In Cold Blood and The Onion Fields. Helter Skelter, The Executioner Song, and of course, The Stranger Beside Me and Rule. And she talks about the formula there, where yeah. it usually focuses on one killer, one event. You get a really deep sort of dramatized psychological portrait of the killer, which draws the reader in to kind of this closeness with the killer. But then the graphic descriptions of the horror and the crime is what starts to distance you from the killer a little bit. Generally, there's a lot of context added and a lot of techniques borrowed from fiction. And there's overwhelming, she said, in the 70s and 80s, really this focus on the psychopath and psychopathic nature of the killer, as well as sexual crimes. So here we are again, sort of Getting that genre into those areas. And then she discusses films. So true crime films really come in the form of documentaries, docudramas, and truth-based fiction. So, you know, I thought the most interesting thing she said here again is really like what she called the rise of the psychopath became the element that these films focus on and really has become a thing of its own, almost an icon in the United States to have this sort of evil genius, psychopathy-laden killer. And that that is the the narrative that was driven for so long. Television was really interesting when she looks at that, because she discusses unsolved mysteries, forensic files. And she said, you know, this, this is a way to bring a little bit more reality, because it's ongoing, it's episodic. But she spent a lot of time talking about the first 48 which I thought was interesting. And she said, you know, she finds that it was so innovative because what it did was it butted up against all of the drama we usually get in true crime. It shows how
1: boring it is.
0: Yes, yes. It shows how boring it is. It's not like shootouts with the cops. It is cops knocking on doors, talking to people, interviewing people. And not only do you see the mundaneness of perhaps a homicide detective's work, but we also get to see the places and the victims that really aren't shown on TV in America. we're, We're just, we're getting a Really, the curtain is peeled back and we're getting to see what it's really like to do this job for one, but also who is being impacted. Again, like she was saying, it really butts up against this sort of missing white women's syndrome that gets plastered on the TV or gets the most attention in the news and in dramatizations. So I thought that was a really interesting way to look at it. And then her book kind of ends in the era of the internet, which she didn't cover podcast because again, 2008, but she talks about the good and the bad of blogs and websites. And I like that she really highlighted some of the good that's out there and what people are doing and how they were being ethical even early on. But again, she really focuses on some certain sites, especially like the LA Times has a blog that's all about homicides here in Los Angeles. And I think there's a counterpart in New York as well. It's actually written by a journalist at the LA Times. And their whole idea was every single week, they're gonna do a recap on all the murders that happened in Los Angeles. But the idea again is to highlight those who are most at risk for homicide, which day after day, week after week are men of color, which again, she said, it's it's not your Lacey Peterson every single week gets, you know, men of color. So it's it's interesting read. I think, you know, recently she's had more commentary, of course, with people looking at this subject and found that now 15 years later or so, people really aren't ashamed of consuming true crime anymore like they might have been back then. And basically there's been better content made, which makes it more palatable to the masses in turn, again, making this sort of big, huge true crime making machine that we have now so again it's it's just from a researcher perspective it's neat to look back at, at how our evolution has come so far.
1: Yeah, and another great reminder that it, it'll be nice if someone picks up the baton and continues <laughs> that vein of research along those themes that she founded, if not herself. I mean, that'd be great. But probably well before its time, even before 2018, back in 2010, there was another study that was conducted that was looking at true crime as a genre in books. And is there really anything better than the true crime section at the bookstore? Even today, even... You know, it may not be the pulpy (laughs) covers that the dime store revolving, you know, display has, but it's, there's some great stuff out there because there are so many stories, right? Yeah.
0: I mean, I can't tell you how many, how many endless hours I spent in front of that little section. It's always like one of the smallest sections when I was in undergrad, you know, sitting on the floor, looking through John Douglas books or what have you. And
1: well, it may have been, it may have been a small section then it isn't now. If you go into, I mean, no, like, I mean, there are a few bookstores, but like when we're down in Palm Springs, we always do a tour through, I think, one of the only remaining Barnes and Nobles or something. Uh And it is a huge section. There's a mm. lot of stuff there. So yeah. anyway, you weren't the only weirdo standing there. <laughs> because
0: I know. Oh, I know. <laughs> in
1: this study, they found that women preferred true crime over other types of violent genres such as war, which was where men tended to focus. Mm-hmm. They also data mined Amazon and found that 75% of the true crime book reviews were completed by women. Other genres of book reviews were evenly split between men and women. Okay. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's good to know too, although it's like, oh, I always get a little wonky. When I hear that a big corporation is digging into data, but that's the way sales. No, goes. these
0: researchers data mined Amazon. It was an Amazon study. Is that what you meant?
1: No, I mean like I get oh, it, like okay. data mined Amazon. But then, oh, um, you know what they did? It's published, so yeah, yeah. That means they would. Boy, that's a that's a lot of parsing, it's a lot of data. reviews
0: to look through. <laughs>
1: yeah, and then to make sure that they're you know posted by women. So Amanda Vickery, the lead researcher on that study and a social psychologist herself, seemed to be one of the first ones who opined that there is an evolutionary reason for this increased interest from women. And here's a quote from her writings. We've adapted to pay attention to anything that can help us increase our survival. So it could be the fact that we're just in tune and interested in these things that are dangerous for us because understanding and knowing about them, can increase our chances that it's not going to happen to us.
0: Yeah. So this is like the most common thing we hear. Absolutely. People yeah. People ask, why are so many women interested in true crime? I was working on this at the the kitchen table and my daughter was there. She's 11. And I said, like with no context, I said, Hey, why do you think so many women are into true crime? She said, to learn how to protect us from the men's, <laughs> <laughs> just all sassy, like <laughs> being funny. But I mean, for an 11-year-old that has some context because of, you know, what I do. The family she's in, yeah. Right. But still, it's a pretty obvious idea. But there's also this notion, which I think lends to it, of the gender fear paradox, where women fear violence more than men. But statistically, men are victimized more often. And then there's the well-studied shadow hypothesis, which posits that women's higher fear of crime as compared to males can be attributed to their elevated fear of sexual victimization which does impact women at higher rates. Right. So we just sort of extrapolate that to all sorts of violent crime and then and end up in this shadow hypothesis.
1: Well, right, because it's easy to say that those stat we can easily point out those stats that You know, men are statistically more or more often victimized in crimes, but you really have to parse down even further in like, and this is not a victim blaming thing at all, but like, you know, were you picking the fight? You know, Mm -hmm. were you like, Mm -hmm. what are you doing? Was it because of the, the tendency of men to be more impulsive or be less restrained and get themselves into situations like that? There's just a lot to look at there that can be sliced and diced.
0: Yeah, definitely. And aside from Amanda Vickery's opinion that basically, you know, you can feel more empowered by listening to these podcasts or consuming true crime. She also said that, there, and she said this 10 years ago, that there could be a feedback loop at some point in which exposure to true, true crime is also or is increasing our anxiety by listening to it.
1: So. I agree. I mean, you know, starting off or kind of reflecting back on where we started this episode, talking about that, you know, learning to trigger our own autonomic fear responses by putting ourselves in these situations where you're exposed to either really frightening scenarios or really exciting scenarios your body doesn't really know the difference. You know, it's it's context. And once the context kicks in, you know, then a whole other set of chemicals will start to cascade. You know, you don't smell horrible after you get off a roller coaster, but you do smell (laughs) horrible when you've been in a situation where you feel like your life has actually been in danger. Yeah, you you start feeding in context to the framework of the experience you have. But yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. And I do think that this is Something really important to look at of like this, the horror maybe is another way to sort of what we call in psychology, cathect some of the mm-hmm. energy, like, you know, release it like, like dogs do with zoomies in a yes. way. Yes. <laughs> but I will say this, and this is just anecdotal. This is my own experience. I remember being super stressed out from interpersonal stuff. Like, and it wasn't at work. I can't even remember. It was several years ago. It was pre-COVID. And I was really stressed. Oh, I know what it was. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I remember. And I can't talk about it on air, but it's somebody you know. Anyway, I was really, really stressed out about an argument that I had had. And so I am going to my go-to. Well, I'm just going to relax and, you know, have a drink and, you know, watch this new horror movie that just came on cable. And about three minutes in, I was like, oh, this is pretty good. This is pretty good. And I realized like, "Mm, you know what, this is not a good mix. I'm Mm. already messed up. up. I'm off balance. And I don't I don't want to add gasoline to the fire. And that was really the only time I've ever had that experience. But it was like, Oh, no, these things are Yeah, these things are related. You have to be careful about like aggravating it.
0: No, for sure. And, you know, PTSD. And when we're talking about vicarious trauma, it falls under anxiety disorders. And I think that would be really interesting even more so to hone in on, do people with anxiety listen to these stories and come away with it, depending on the type of story, again, the type of narrative, right? Like, does it have a nice, clean resolution? And is that comforting? And or do different types of, of stories or narratives, if it's this unsolved mysteries and there is no resolution at the end, how does that impact their already existing disorder? So, right. I mean, so many areas you can dive into, but let's look at podcast specific stuff, kind of pick up where some of these earlier studies left off. Historically, of course, we have Serial that came Mm -hmm. along in 2014 as the podcast that launched all podcasts really into the mainstream way of consuming entertainment. And it just so happened to be that it was a true crime podcast. And then following Serial, we had the post-Serial boom of podcasting. And that included a lot of true crime from others trying to do the same long-form serial-like investigations to people starting podcasts about Serial to friends just simply gabbing about true crime stories. And the true crime boom Has stuck. So as of today, as we record this, of the top 10 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, seven of them are true crime. So, and that's pretty normal, if not more than seven. So we found a master's thesis from 2019 that specifically looked at the impact of the podcast serial and my favorite murder on a couple of issues. One, how the creator's style of narration and the form of the podcast aim at engaging the audience. They also looked at how it affects audiences in general, and then how the podcasts were received by audiences. And it also has a great summary of the history of true crime. Again, going back very far to the Bible, (laughs) to more contemporary times. As always, we will link this in, in our resource page.
1: So they found that the true crime genre and the podcasting medium have mutually influenced each other, not surprising at all. (laughs) And of course, they've essentially benefited from each other as well. They describe this as a genre medium evolution, which is a fitting name for the phenomenon that we've all experienced as listeners. They also suggest that the serial fans want the traditional mystery and resolution and the My Favorite Murder listeners come for a completely different reason, and that is community, validation, and tightly told storytelling with friends. That's what one of the people's, yep. one of the, what the people always say about My Favorite Murder is just you're in the room with them and mm-hmm. hanging out with friends. So since it's fairly recent, this is also a body of work that captures the very current evolution of true crime podcasting, including more content creators of color, victim-centered storytelling, and true crime professionals entering the space rather than just being guests.
0: Oh, hello. yes yes and they also said that of course you might go to something serial for something specific and you might go to my favorite murder for something specific there can be crossover there but you know what you're getting you know what you're coming for it depends what type of mood you're in that that's the podcast you're gonna press play on so it's also interesting to look at research as far as like how victims are portrayed in podcasts specifically so on this sort of note of coverage of victims sacramento state Professor and researcher Danielle Slackoff has published work in this area. Much of her research is focused on the media portrayal of crime and victimization, missing white women's syndrome, as well as examining how white, black, and Latino women and girls are differently portrayed in news stories about their victimization. And her more recent studies have examined true crime media content and intimate partner violence. So in 2022, she published a paper specifically examining how the indirect victims of crime, or what she calls co victims, Victims are portrayed in true crime podcasts. These were cases in which the victim was a woman who was missing, but presumed killed. And what she and her co-researchers did is they applied the stages of grief to the co-victims and found that their experiences with grief were portrayed as what she called complex with all stages, all six stages being represented to some degree, but that the stages of acceptance and Meaning, which is the new sixth stage that was recently developed by David Kessler, were more magnified than any of the others. So kind of on the tail end, if you will, of their grief process. And if you're curious, the podcast that they looked at was your favorite, non-favorite, I don't know how to call it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cold, season one. Someone Knows Something, season two of that one. And then Teacher's Pet, so three Phenomenal podcasts. Very successful. All, yeah. yeah. All done very, very well. So, again, just oh, very specific here what they're looking at, but I like that someone's paying attention and at how we're dealing with victims, because that's really important.
1: So in 2021, she and her team examined the types of abuse and violence that are portrayed in True Crime Podcasts, telling stories of intimate partner violence. And overall, they found that controlling behaviors, emotional abuse, and coercive control were commonly depicted. The most common form of abuse depicted was physical violence, and it tended to be presented in ways that focused on the injuries and method, which were bruising and strangulation. However, they felt that the podcast provided a much more realistic portrayal Trail of IPV and from a victim centered point of view, as opposed to traditional news sources. Thank you very much. Yes. They opine that the podcast could have done a more thorough job of describing the societal conditions that contribute to abuse. Good, I, good I like that. Moving so yeah, forward. Yeah. yeah, I think we do something along that line. I think we, you know, try and focus when we have those types of stories. So Melissa Tackett Gibson out of University of Colorado is currently running a study with a survey geared towards true crime consumers. And we're going to link that as well in the show notes, mm-hmm. we're going to have her on our live stream on the 24th of this month to talk about specifics. So Please, please, please join us. But essentially, it looks like they want to know who the consumer base is and get some ideas of their attitudes about the criminal justice system. And they're looking at the amount of true crime a person consumes and why. I mean, asking from different standpoints, like education, relating to the victims, or maybe just because they relax the listener, maybe. Mm -hmm. So we're excited to learn more from her in a couple of weeks when we chat with her. And the results should be out this fall of 2023.
0: Yes. So if you haven't taken that survey yet and you want to click on the link in the show notes and you can be a part of it. Additionally, we were made aware of a research project out of the University of North Dakota that was gathering data back in December of 2021 and beyond I'm guessing because I haven't found that it's published yet. And it was looking at the intersections between traumatic experiences, media exposure and mental health. So specifically, they were wanting to hone in on women's mental health. And if I remember correctly, their questions seem to be parsing out if the respondent had exposure to an actual firsthand trauma and then what their consumption of true crime was like as well. So Mm. along the lines of really what you and I were thinking, I'm really excited for these because, hey, if you and I don't have the time to do it, we're glad someone else is. (laughs) And we're happy to have them on to talk about their research. So yeah, please make sure you mark your calendars for our live conversation with Melissa in a few weeks. I don't know, this had me think of like what else I would want to see in the future of research. So if you, I, I know we have a lot of academics, a lot of people in grad school that are savvy with reading through academic articles, but you know, at the end, you always kind of talk about one what the limitations are but also where's the future of what you're studying and it's like you can pick up a journal article really and get an idea of a direction to go in research because the authors put it right there so i thought you and i could talk about just a little bit of you know what else would we like to see like if we had a magic wand and we could whip up all this data what would we want to know about the true crime genre Scott, any ideas?
1: I think that all of the questions that are being asked right now cover about 99% of it for me. The only thing that I can think of spontaneously, like right offhand as what I would be interested in is if there's a difference between a true crime fan that just drops in for one type of show versus another type of show. And not, not so specifically as those categories they Mm -hmm. were talking about before but like what is the one that's out there that i think is fascinating that a lot of people are drawn to is the is it the wish
0: the wish the
1: dream about the first season was about mlms you know so that's not traditional true crime but what's being done is absolutely criminal? And is there a crossover between audiences there? And are there some people that just get bored with it? I would love to know if there's sort of like an extinction point for consumers. And if those consumers fit a different profile than Mm -hmm. hardcore, ongoing, chronic, true crime murder
0: stories. Yeah, Yeah, that would be really interesting. And, you know, I think like the one Mm. study or paper touched on, you know, there is such an evolution away from just the murder narratives. I mean, the whole like MLM, fraud, you know, those are very, very successful shows when you talk about things that just focus on that, like Swindled or Pretend. But I would love to know about the men who listen to True Crime because there's obviously a ton of male creators out there that we know and just why they come for it. You know what? Maybe that would give us a little bit more insight into something that's an alternative explanation. I don't feel like I ever consumed True Crime as a part of... Like, I have to keep myself safe and learn from these stories. So I kind of wonder at times, like, what brings me in? And maybe I'd be more similar to some of the men that come into the genre and listen.
1: So. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that I'm drawn to it for, I mean, I, and I think, and maybe I, there's a an area, you know, of the Johari window that I'm not aware of. Mm-hmm. But, like, I don't, I don't think it's because it's a, you know, protective measure on my part. But again, it's sort of why I came into this field to begin with is because and, and not just working with people in private practice that are dealing with, you know, sort of the challenges of day to day life and, and mental health diagnoses, but like the real alien stuff, you know, mm-hmm. which is goes to, you know, our company Alienist entertainment and the <laughs> idea that they're that's what the name of psychologists were as we were, they were studying people who were alienated from themselves. And it really is is looking at like I I know the process of psychopathy I understand what factors contribute to being a sociopath and what goes into impulsive murders and I still go what the fuck yeah you know and that's fascinating to me
0: yeah definitely I, I think we are sort of outliers in the sense that we took it to the point of <laughs> it's our careers right. so maybe it's just like our our minds being drawn I don't know I think Almost like when you look at sexual interests, we can, we're going to, we're going to magnify this to other areas of like different other types of interests, but there's probably some that just forever, whatever reason are just innate in us, right? It just needs the right thing to make it (laughs) bloom, if you will. I don't know. Yeah. There, there doesn't necessarily have to be a, a traumatic story behind it. I don't think, but Research will tell, we'll see. And I'm glad we focused on some of the good that true crime has brought because there's a a lot of bad and obviously that's driving who is telling the stories these days. So I think, you know, for me, when I look at true crime and I want to look at a glass half full perspective. I think talking about mental health has been fantastic. It's just opened up a window for that. And and that's what I saw a lot, especially there there were more specific studies that were just looking at the audiences of my favorite murder. <laughs> but they're talking about, you know, the the Facebook groups become like a support system for people. And once the women started opening up about their own mental health struggles and just regular life stress and how they were dealing with that, that really spoke to a lot of people. So I think the conversations in and around mental health are really important. Giving victims a platform, not not just giving them a platform to be interviewed or talk about their stories, but now they're creating their own content, which is fantastic. And they, as well as their audiences, are demanding more of that, which yeah. networks and entities like a crime con or something like that need to listen at some point because they have a huge, huge following because nothing is better than that authenticity.
1: I also and- think that there's a, there's an opportunity here that is being used for content creators to come forward. Many of them who are our peers to say, Hey, look, we need to look at all the victims of crimes, you sure. know, for way too long, women of color, Indigenous women, they've all been marginalized and their stories are not told in the same way that white women's stories are told. And in fact, the stats are worse for those victims as well. Like it, And it's ridiculous that we don't focus on them. And I don't know if this had not evolved into what it is. I don't know if there would be a real platform for those creators to say, it's about downtime, you look at us.
0: Yeah, I don't know either. I don't know either. Because... If you're just having documentaries or docudramas, picking and choosing what they think are going to get the right, right viewers or the right numbers of viewers, that's the beauty of podcasting. Literally anybody with a microphone can do it. So you have those stories being demanded. Anything else you want to add to just like? No, the, I think the, we the covered it. Brings? We're looking
1: forward to the, to more research. So, you know, normally in the part of the show, at least in the way we structure it, this is usually where we start talking about related criminal cases, but hey you know we're talking (laughs) about the genre so even that would feel too meta for today and to a little gross to cover a criminal case that's inspired by true crime although i'm sure there are some that are out there but interesting for sure but still doesn't feel right so with that let's go into entertainment revolving around true crime and this is truly art imitating life imitating art and there's a lot of it out there that's super clever
0: Yes, yes, that's for sure. Starting off with just a total parody, of course, is the SNL skit murder show, like basically the music video where the women are...
1: (laughs) Yeah, they've done some really great music videos. There's like the women women coming home, taking Uh their boyfriends home for the first time, girls coming back from college for the first time. And it's always done as like the women are totally badass. And this is another one where...
0: Oh god. Can you
1: remember the rhythm on that rap?
0: I th- think so. Okay. I'm gonna try this. So this is this line is hilarious. That's why I wrote it down. Gonna dig up some bodies and do an autopsy. Boring. Wake me up when it's munchausen by proxy.
1: <laughs> I mean, come <laughs> like, on, you gotta love that. That's I great. know
0: because it's just like specific enough, <laughs> you <Right>. know, <laughs> yeah, that it hits home. But essentially, you know, this depiction of The guy's getting out of the house and finally the women have time to do it themselves. And you almost think that it's like like
1: an affair or something, right? An
0: affair or like some self-pleasure time or something. And then they're eating pizza, pulling the blanket on top of them and watching their murder shows. So,
1: well, there's even a commercial like that ran. I don't, it seems like I haven't seen it recently, but it was running all the time for pre-popped popcorn, like Smart Pop or something. And it was Uh like... It's a whole bag kind of night. And like, you know, they're laying in front of watching, (laughs) you know, murder mysteries and stuff. But another one that got a lot of and we love Kristen Bell. Kristen Bell is so talented. The woman across the street from the girl in the window. (laughs) And it was a parody fiction. It was a, you know, the trope of the woman who drinks too much wine and she becomes a citizen sleuth after she thinks she's witnessed a murder. But everybody knows she's kind of a lush. So can you really trust anything she says? And then, of course, there's Only Murders in the Building, which is oh, yes, incredibly yes. clever and kind of reinvents itself with a great twist every season. Cannot wait for the next one. And then Truth Be Told, which I have not been able to get into yet, but I've heard it's really good. Have you seen it?
0: I watched a little bit of it. And so it's about a true crime podcaster, right? That Right tries to solve this mystery. And once I saw the house that she lived in, I was like, there is no way a true crime podcaster lives in a house like yeah, that. <laughs> You know, it was like
1: not unless you had um, already inherited a lot of money. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. No, I didn't finish it. I
1: but, think that there's an explanation for that. I think that she like came from another career or she made money. I but think still. So. But I was was going to also say that like and I apologize. I hope it's not someone that I know through my husband, but <laughs> I didn't really care for the production design. It didn't, it looked like a, it looked a little too precious instead of like the house that somebody uh, lives in. You know, that's right. to me, like that's the magic of production design. When uh, it's like, you So you can have tell. seen
0: some scenes of yeah, Octavia yeah. Spencer's home but, in it. Yeah. And
1: she's great. I mean, I'll watch her oh, sh- read a phone book. I really no wanted her to be, I wanted her to be the new My Favorite Murder. I wanted them to reboot that whole series mm. with her and in the Angela Lansbury role. I think that would be fantastic. uh,
0: You said you wanted her to be the new My Favorite Murder. No, I'm sorry. (laughs) Murder, She Wrote.
1: Murder, She Wrote. (laughs) Sorry. That would be cool. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. But she is a great actress. She could play Karen Kilgariff and Georgia, both at the same time. In fact, <laughs>
1: let's let's have them do that. She plays both roles. I love it. There you go. Okay. I think they would love it.
0: <laughs> I think they would. And then you have kind of the documentaries that are starting to be true crime documentaries about true crime. So Vice just recently did The Rise of True Crime, which really centers around Tara Newell and her not her story because her story's been told ad nauseum about Dirty John, right? But what she's doing in the aftermath and how this has impacted her and yeah. um, thoughtful and well, we have a lot of gratitude towards Tara for inviting us to a survivor squad meeting and get blowing. together. Yeah, so they they film at this event that we went to with a lot of survivors talking about their stories and finding support and solace in each other and power in again taking their narratives back but it's just a very you know as as vice does producing you know some good content about just the realities of how this is impacting people and what you know kind of leaves you thinking okay how do I want to be a consumer of true crime and then there's a documentary coming out i think it was at some of the film festivals but it's called Citizen Sleuth so citizen Sleuth follows a true crime podcaster from the Appalachia who they say, quote, blurs the line between fact and entertainment as she investigates a mysterious local death. So it's sort of looking at behind the scenes with a true crime podcaster and what comes of her show and interacting with families and getting involved in real investigations and the good, the bad and the ugly that comes with that so again we're coming we're like super super meta full circle here yeah, absolutely <laughs> totally life imitating art and so on so we'll see what else is to come but just such a wild industry
1: <laughs> yeah and it's going to be a great live stream too, talking with our yes. upcoming guest about this very subject so please everyone jump on when you can And if not, you can catch it on YouTube later. But we always love having as many people there because the questions that come up are great and we can feed it to our guests in real time, which they love as well.
0: Absolutely. But aside from all of this, I adore our people. I adore true crime. You know, we did our first paranormal festival and I was like, I'll take a true crime crowd over the paranormal (laughs) people any day.
1: It was a very interesting mix of people. Yes. Some wonderful people, but it was, yeah, there was, there were some interesting people there. And I'm, I'm pretty woo woo. And that was very woo woo for me. Yeah. It was. There we go.
0: All right, you guys. So this will probably be continued. I envision a true crime revisited episode. In the not so far future. But that's that's where we stand in the research. That's where you guys stand in the research right now.
1: That's right. So thanks for checking in with us, folks. We will be presenting just a couple of days from now after you hear this. So look for us online. Yep. And we will see you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Thanks, folks.
0: Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions.
1: The LA Not-So-Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons Attribution License. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube.
0: All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at la-not-so-podcast, on Twitter at la-not-so-pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com.
1: Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements.
0: Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way.
1: Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not so. Confidential. Bye folks.